You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to turn to Genesis 48. We'll be reading the entire chapter this morning and Genesis 48, verse 1, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you father after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paden to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim and his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel pronounced blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope 
that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning, Father. We look to you to be our teacher. We look to you, Lord, to be our guide. We look to you, Lord, to open your word before us and open our hearts, Father, before your word. Lord, you'd be pleased to instruct us and teach us that we would come to know and understand what the Holy Spirit intended for recording this story, for um, preserving this story. So, Lord, uh, we, we want all that you have for us this morning. And we ask that you would give to us liberally, O oh Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our text begins with two words after this. Of course, that's pointing us contextually. There's three things that are important in studying our Bibles, and we know what those three things are, don't we? Context, context, and context. And after this, uh, is pointing us back, uh, pointing us back to what we looked at uh, two weeks ago, namely the event of the, that's recorded for us at the end of Genesis 47. Uh, if you look at verse 29, there you see that the time drew near that Israel must die. Now, what is interesting about this, and I, I think I pointed this out two weeks ago. I intended to. I don't think I forgot. I think I pointed it out. Uh, is that in terms of the amount of narrative, this is unique because basically from, uh, from verse 27 and onward through almost practically the rest of Genesis, the context is the deathbed of Jacob. And if you, if you just think for a moment, if, if you, you know, it might be helpful if we just turn back. Turn back to Genesis 25, if you will. And there we see the record of Abraham's death. If you turn back, just leaf back to Genesis 25. Now, there's so much material given to Abraham's life, but in terms of his death, we have really two verses. There's some other verses that are peripheral to his death, but there are two verses, uh, verse 7 and 8. Uh, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years, which is staggering to us. Um, Verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. So you have two verses, really. Uh, if you turn back to 23, chapter 23, we have the record of uh, Sarah passing, and it's really the same thing. Sarah, verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it, isn't it? Um, the matriarch of uh, Israel, two verses. The patriarch of Israel, two verses. Uh, you go to Isaac, the record of Isaac's death, which I think is about chapter 35. Uh, 35, yeah. Chapter 35. Um, we'll find the same thing. Not a whole lot given. We have the death, the record of Rachel's death coming first. Uh, there's some words, really a paragraph given to her death, and, and namely it's describing the, the context of her death. She, she dies as she's giving birth to Benjamin, but verses in 19, um, so Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath. 
Uh, and then Isaac follows. Um, same thing, Isaac, two verses given to his death. Uh, my whole point, I think you can see the point I'm trying to make here, is that uh, when we come to Jacob and his passing on, we have all the material from really the end of chapter 47, all through 48, 49, and uh, obviously, I mean, at the end of 49, uh, Jacob uh, passes away, and then we still have chapter 50 concerning uh, his, his burial. So in terms of amount of material, I, I think we can see right there there's, there's something very significant going on here. Now, I, I think I can offer some insight into this. What is happening? There is an incredible transition taking place right now. Up to this point, the life has really centered. Of course, God is always the central figure in all of these stories. But in terms of the human characters, they've centered around the patriarchs, right? Ever since chapter 11, it starts out by centering around Abraham. But then it segues into centering around Isaac. And really, as we've been studying the life of Joseph, so it's easy for us to forget, but really the life of Joseph is really brackets underneath the life of Jacob. If, if we're looking at the context properly, we'll see it that way. Uh, you, can, you can leaf through your Bibles this afternoon, you'll see that to be the case. Uh, it's the genealogy of Jacob. That's one of the last divisions that we have in Genesis, in the Genesis record. Now, what is taking place here is a transition from the patriarchal age to Israel as a nation. And it's a tremendous transition, actually. Because now it's, it's not so much going to center on one patriarch. And actually, the people of God, the covenant family, if you will, are in really quite a spot here. Let's think it through for a minute. The patriarch is about to pass away. What are the last things that Jacob is doing? One thing that we looked at two weeks ago. What is Jacob doing at the end of chapter 47? He, Jacob himself calls Joseph, right, to his deathbed. And he says, Joseph, I want you to swear to me that you'll do this one thing for me. And what is that? Do not bury me in Egypt. Now, what is the significance of that? The significance of that is that Jacob has his eyes on the promise of God. And in setting his eyes on the promise of God, and we're especially going to see this in chapter 50, but I'll give you a preview of chapter 50. Jacob is also, in setting his own eyes upon the promises of God, he is witnessing and leading his family to keep their eyes on the promises of God. I don't think for a New York second here that Jacob doesn't understand the danger of these dynamics. He is about to pass away. And where is the covenant family? They're in Egypt. Now, what's going to become of the covenant family? Are they going to fall away? Are they going to be absorbed into Egypt? Are, are they going to be absorbed into the high life of Egyptian culture? And I can see that as a, a, a premier danger. And it is after this, Joseph comes to uh, Jacob's bedside, to his father's bedside. He, he solemnly promises and covenants with his father, I will see to it, uh, Dad, that you are buried in Canaan. I'll see to it that you are buried in Canaan. 
And then Joseph goes back to his duties. And we come to chapter 48, and we're told that after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. Now, with that in mind, let's approach chapter 48 with this in mind, with a couple of questions. I've already asked them. What is going to become of the covenant family of God as they find themselves in this very visibly uh, precarious spot? They're, They're in a dangerous spot. What is going to become of them? Well, Jacob is shouldering a massive amount of responsibility, and fathers, all the fathers here in the congregation, uh, we can get we get that right. We have a responsibility to our children, to our families, to care for them, to provide for them. We, we, we get that. But what I want to point out this morning is that the covenant family, though. Jacob has his responsibilities, and they're, they're, they're mighty. But ultimately, the covenant family is not in the hands of Jacob. They're in the hands of God. And I thought a nice title, maybe, for this morning's message would be God's Amazing Hands. Do you like that? You're allowed to say no if you don't like that. I will just say it's a little late for me to change it. Um, but, um, but I thought, God's amazing hands. Why do we bring up God's? God's amazing hands are in this whole thing. I, 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 you know, all week long, I've been looking at this text, looking for some type of governing principle in this text, and I'm sure we could come up with others, but His amazing hands are in this passage from start to finish. We'll, the, the first one that I, that I have is probably the most difficult, so I thought, let's get the first one, and I like it because it comes in the text first. We'll get the most difficult one over uh, with first, but as we think about God's amazing hands... The first one, the first peg, if you will, if you want to take notes, uh, here's uh, providential hands. You could write down providential, I think would help you to, rem- to remember this. God's providential hands. As we think about his amazing hands and we think about this text, here we see the covenant family is in God's providential hands. Now, in the previous story, it is Jacob who calls for Joseph, Right? Jacob calls his son Joseph. Joseph comes to him. He says, listen, promise me you won't bury me in Egypt. Okay, Dad, I won't. Joseph goes back to his duties. But in chapter 48, verse 1, Jacob is not the one that initiates the meeting. He's not the one that initiates the meeting. Jacob is told by others, okay, you need to get here. And that sets the tone here. That sets the context. It's within the context of a dying loved one that these things take place. Many of us have been there. We've gotten those phone calls and have said, listen, the time you need to get here. It's time to get here. Now, this is difficult for a lot of people. Why does, why does Joseph need to get there? Well, because his father's ill. And his illness has intensified. Okay, but what's behind that? What's behind that is God's providence. If you look back to verse 29 of chapter 47, we're told that the time has come that Israel must die. 
a lot of people have trouble with the scriptures. They have trouble with the idea of God. And you've heard it. Maybe some of you have talked with people. Maybe some of you even know someone who said, I cannot believe in a God who is good, yet all this evil take place. How many have heard that one? All of us. And probably some of you have been like, wow, what do I do with this? And maybe, maybe some of us actually have wrestled with that over the years. If God is so good, then how can there be evil in this world? How can there be suffering if God is so good? If God is so good and God is so powerful, well, then he could alleviate it if he wants to, right? And that's the argument. So, okay, God is either not good or God is either not sovereign. How, you know, and so the argument goes. And some people say, listen, I can't believe in a God that's going to allow all of this suffering to go on here. And here I am suggesting that the suffering has been intensified by none other than God himself. That's what the test, we're going to see, that's what the text is teaching here. Who is calling this meeting? God is calling this meeting. How is God calling this meeting? Through the intensity of Jacob's illness. That's what brings Joseph to the meeting. Now, other well-intended people say, oh, listen, God don't have nothing to do with that. God, God, is, God is in on all the happy stuff, but God is not in on all the other stuff. God is in on the happy stuff. As well-intended as that might be, that is doing equal, I won't say equal injustice to God's glory, but it's, it's just simply, it's, listen, if you're going to use that one, be prepared for that to fall completely flat to whoever you're saying it to because the, there's no strength in falsehood. There's just no strength in falsehood. It's just not true. It's just simply not true. It's not biblical. Our, our Lord is willing to... Listen, this is messy. Our Lord is willing to get into the mess. Here we see God's providential hands. And in His providence, the time has come that, that Jacob must die. Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. Acts 17, the time for us was set by the decree of God, where we should live, when we should be born. Uh, Psalm 139, all the years and the days uh, have, been, have been given. They're written in God's book. The time has come. What is the Lord doing? He is intensifying Joseph, or Jacob's illness to bring Joseph to his bedside. Now, this doesn't just bring Joseph to his bedside. You'll notice that this brings Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim to his bedside. So what do we say to the person who's wrestling with this? Here is what I would say to them, and here's what I think you could even turn them to this passage. You could say, here, let me give you one example. Let me show you a principle here. The covenant people are in great danger the people of God are in great danger here. Why are they in great danger? The patriarch's about to pass away. And they're in Egypt. And they're in danger of being absorbed into, the, into Egypt. They're, they're in such danger. God wants to leave a mark on their hearts that is not easily forgotten. We might call it an indelible mark, a mark that's not easily erased, a mark that's not easily forgotten. Listen, if you've been to the bedside of a loved one, you have not forgotten that, have you? If you were God and you wanted to bring your children to a place where they could be instructed in such a way that they will never forget it, well, this might be a good way to do it. Our God is not unloving. 
We don't need to like think that we have to defend his honor. Um, his, he'll do just fine by himself. He's quite capable. He is out to leave an indelible mark on these. And think about it. Everybody, Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim are gathered around his bedside. This, this not only serves to get their attention. They're going to stop everything that they're doing. And it's not like their minds are going to be wondering on 90 million things as this is taking place. That isn't how it works, is it? If you've been there, did you give uh, care at all about your house, about your car, about your job, about anything? No, it's like everything stops, isn't it? The world stops. There isn't anything that matters. You're right there next to your loved one. There isn't anything that matters. And God is bringing this family to this point so that he can leave this lasting impression on their hearts. Here we see God's providential hands working. It's told to Jacob, verse 2, your son Joseph has come to you. And then Israel summons his strength. You see that at the end of verse 2? Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Where does that strength come from? It comes from the faithfulness of God. You see, there's where we begin to see his faithful hands. You see his faithful hands. We see his providential hands. We see his faithful hands. And then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And what does Jacob, when Jacob finally, when, he's, when, he, you know, when he sits up, what's he say? Look at verse 3 and 4. He says to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession." This is amazing. What's on, what's on Jacob's mind? His mind is on the promises. You know, Ephraim one of these days, and this goes back to the providence of God here. Ephraim, 30 years from now, can say, man, I was there when my grandfather was breathing his last, man. I'm going to tell you all the way to the end. He never took his eyes. I can tell you right now. I can remember it like it happened this afternoon. Pap never took his eyes off the promises of God. It took suffering to tattoo, to tattoo that on the heart of Ephraim and Manasseh and Joseph. It took suffering to do that. His eyes were on the promises. Now, notice what goes on in verse 5. Notice what Jacob does. He says, and now, speaking to Joseph, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. What's up with that? We get a little more information here. He says Ephraim, notice the reversal. Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh is the oldest. But Jacob says Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Rumid and Simeon are. Oh, what is he doing? Well, Ephraim and Manasseh are Jacob's grandchildren. What is Jacob doing? He is adopting them as his own children, and their status is being exalted from grandchildren to co-heirs of the promise with Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Dad, and Gad, and Asher, and down the list you go. Now, what is the significance of this? What is so significant about it? Right here, I'll just give you a tip. Right here, we're starting to see the Lord's shepherding hands. His shepherding hands. 
Let's ask a few contextual questions about who Ephraim and Manasseh are. Who are they? Well, they're the sons of Jacob, or sons of Joseph, right? Who is their mom? I oh, say, well, Asenath. Yes, Asenath. Who is Asenath? Well, she was the daughter of that famous priest, right? Yeah, the big name priest of Egypt. Is he a priest of Almighty God, the God of Abraham? No, no, he's that, he's that priest down in Egypt, the uh, priest of the gods of Egypt. That's their grandfather on their mother's side. Who is their daddy? You know, in the south they say, do you know who my daddy is? You know, there's Ephraim and Manasseh. You know, if those two were to say, do you know who my daddy is? He needs no introduction. Who is their daddy? He's the second most powerful man in the world. He is a, he's a man whose approval rating, if there was ever a leader whose approval rating was high, it was Joseph. He's, a, he's, a, he's, he's looked upon as the Savior with a lowercase s of the world. Where did these kids grow up? Did they grow up behind sheep out in the middle of the desert or wilderness of Canaan? No, they grew up in the courts of, of Egypt. They grew up within the nobility. They grew up in the palace of, of Pharaoh. You know, they've been to all the dinners. They've seen all the world leaders. We're, 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 what do you suppose their future looks like? What do you suppose they have their eyes on? You know, the old preachers used to use the word preferment. Did these kids, did these kids have preferment? You better believe it. Do you think a nice cozy job could have been arranged for these kids after Joseph retires? Oh, you better believe it. You know who these kids are? These kids are the sons of Joseph. Where do they fit? Where do they fit? If Jacob would have passed away, and nothing been done here, then we could ask the question, where does Ephraim and Manasseh fit? Oh, an argument could be made, well, they're Joseph's sons, so they're part of the covenant family. But we could also hear some folks on the extreme other side say, nah, they're not really the family. They're born in Egypt. They're raised in the palace. They're not really one of us. We could hear another one say, well, of course they're one of them. You could hear this. You could hear this. There would be gray, wouldn't it? It would be gray. But because of the shepherding hand of Almighty God, it's not gray, is it? It's concrete. Why is this so important? Why am I laboring at this? I'll tell you why I'm laboring at this. Because once in a while, someone will come to me, and they won't say it. I haven't heard it in a while, but I've heard it over and over again over the years. And they generally do not say it. They don't just come out and say I don't feel like I fit in, but they'll say all kinds of other stuff that when you, you begin to look at all the other stuff, you begin to analyze all the other stuff, then a lot of times you'll just come around and say, I think what you're saying is you don't feel like you fit in. That's it exactly. And it's so painful that they don't even want to say it. They don't want to comment. They, 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 just don't, they don't want to just say, you know, I don't fit in. I just don't feel like I fit in anywhere I go. Now, maybe that describes some of us. But if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, if you're trusting in Christ, you're trusting in His work, you're trusting in His person, you're trusting in His record, you're trusting in what He did, that on the cross He truly took your sins away and wiped you clean, and you're trusting that His finished work, His finished record is yours, you're truly in Christ, you fit in. There is a place for you. And that's what's being established here with Ephraim and Manasseh. 
There is no gray area about where they fit in. They are going to be co-inheritors with their uncles. And you'll see that when, if you read the book of Joshua, you'll see that, that the inheritance this is giving to Ephraim and to Manasseh. And in fact, if you look at one of the maps, you'll see Manasseh the, the, in terms of the acreage of their allotments. I mean, they're on both sides of the Jordan River, and it's huge. It's an enormous, an enormous uh, allotment of land that is, given, that is given to them. Where do we fit? If you're in Christ Jesus, you fit in the church. You fit in the church. That's the beginning of getting over that anxiety, actually, is knowing that I fit. Why do you fit? For the same reason that's going on right here, because God's shepherding hand has brought you in. That's why. Wait a minute. I fit because why do I fit? You fit because God has brought you in. We're going to see that even more clearly here in a few minutes. In verse 6, Jacob says that the children you speaking to Joseph, the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. So uh, kids that are born after Ephraim, these kids are going to fall under the umbrella of Ephraim and, and, and Manasseh. Verse 7, uh, Jacob then begins to kind of, you, you know, he's thinking of Rachel. And this is just the way it is, too. When you're, when you're in that moment, I think those of us who have been in that moment with loved ones are passing away. This is, I mean, the way the mind will go, you know, you, you're, you, you, you'll, you'll be thinking about You'll be thinking about things that are, that are serious in one respect, and then all at once you'll just recount, especially folks who have lost their spouse many years earlier. What will they do? They'll bring up their spouse. And this is exactly what Jacob is doing here. He's, he brings up Rachel. Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way uh, when there was still some distance. You can see that he still loves Rachel so very dearly. And Rachel, of course, is Joseph's mom, Right? Now, in verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, now we can remember, at this point, Jacob's blind. Probably at this point, here's the kids. And um, he asks, he says, who are these? And Joseph says, well, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And Jacob says, well, bring them to me, please, that I may bless him. And he brings them and... Look at verse 11, the high praise. And again, this speaks to the faithful hand of God. Jacob is referred to as Israel in verse 11. And Israel says to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children too. You know, for those, all those years, Jacob would have never imagined he would see Joseph alive. And here he is seeing. And he's blind. But yet he says he can see. Actually, Jacob can see clearer than everyone in this, yet he's blind. We'll see that again and again in this text. Then Joseph took them, verse 13. Notice how Joseph takes them. He has, he has Ephraim. And first, before we do this, let's do this simple exercise. We're, we're facing each other, which means my left hand is facing your right hand, right? Pretty simple. And the opposite is true, right? My right hand is facing your left, you know, left, right, facing each other. Let's think that in our minds. Joseph took them both. Ephraim, the younger, is in his right hand. Manasseh, the older, is in his left hand so that when he faces his father, Manasseh will be on his right side. Now, Joseph's approaching his blind father. 
Imagine approaching your blind father. He can't see. So we're going to order the kids the way they should be. So all he has to do is stick out his arms, right? Is it that simple? The Lord loves a good story. I mean, this is a really good story. This is no Hallmark story where, you know, you've seen one and, you know, you can start, watch it, and you can go do something and come back and not miss really anything because, you know, it's so predictable. You know how it's going to work. I'm not slamming Hallmark. They write those stories. People love those stories. They, they got their following. I'm not among them, but they got their following. It, here the Lord loves a great story. The twists in this story. What does Jacob do? You can imagine him being blind. What's he do? He sticks his arms out and he crosses them. He, he crosses over and he puts his right hand on the younger child and he puts his left hand on the older child crossing his arms. He can't see. Who's doing this? Obviously, God is doing this. We have to understand that what's going on right now is being inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's why I say we see God's providential hands. Who called this meeting together? It was God who called this meeting together. It's important that we understand that. We can really help a lot of people that are having a lot of trouble if we get this and we announce this. Look, this is what God is doing. God is in this whole thing. Here we have Jacob crossing his arms. And then in verse 15, he begins to bless Joseph. And he says in these verses, boy, will these verses preach. Maybe one of these days we'll come back just to these verses. I was tempted to do it now, but it'd be way too much. And I'm trying to resist that. We'll be here another half hour. But listen to these verses. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Look at the way he's exalting God here. I mean, the, the, the Jacob, the way Jacob lifts. You have to ask yourself, is this really Jacob, the conniver that went scattering out of his father's household because he conned his dad? Yeah, it's him. It's amazing what he's doing, isn't it? It's just amazing. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me, that'll preach. We used to say in seminary, that'll preach. Boy, that'll preach, won't it? The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And within the melody of this, I mean, this melody is echoing through the cathedrals of heaven, if you will. And in the midst of this, of this, of this, of this glorious melody that's taking place, Joseph is bugged. Why is Joseph bugged? Dad, you got your hands crossed. You, you got the wrong guy. And he, he takes his father's hands and he tries to, to move them. And does Jacob, does Jacob not know what he's doing? As, as dementia set in, he doesn't realize what he's doing. Is his blindness and illness so overtaking him that he's just not aware? Is he making a mistake? Verse 19 clears, up, clears that up. His father refuses and said, I know, son, I know. He's fully aware of what he's doing. And he says, he shall also be great. That is Manasseh. But his younger brother Ephraim shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And here we see the sovereign hands of God. Now why is it so important? A lot of people rebel against the sovereignty of God uh, listen, you cannot have the providential hands of God if you don't have the sovereign hands of God. If God's hands aren't sovereign, they can't be providential. 
And you can't have the faithful hands of God if you don't have the sovereign hands of God. How can God be faithful? How can he really say, this is how everything's going to work out if those hands aren't sovereign? And besides that, the comfort that this will bring, what is going to become of the family, the covenant family? I don't worry about the covenant family. They're in the amazing hands of God. Let me tell you about these hands. They are sovereign hands. They are sovereign hands. John tells it this way. You don't need to turn there. You can just listen because the verse is so famous. You'll recognize it as soon as I start reading it. In the prologue of his gospel, in verse 11, Jesus came, comes to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But listen to verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our Lord is not some senile grandfather sitting up in heaven somewhere trying to bless us, and we won't let him. Most of our problems in life stem from two things, really. One is we don't know God at all, or two, we don't know him very well. If our, if our thoughts about God are a senile grandfather who would love to bless us, but is unable because we won't let him, we don't know him at all. You really don't know him at all. Our Lord has sovereign hands. Salvation is in His hands. That's the best of news. What application do we make of that? Are you in Christ Jesus this morning? Are you in Christ Jesus this morning? It's because of His sovereign hands if you're in Christ Jesus this morning. You know, if it's up to us, I mean, we're in now, but man, we could really, we could really, boy, we could really blow it and be out tomorrow, couldn't we? <laughs> couldn't we? I would say definitely. You think you're going to make it till tomorrow? I'm not going to bet. I'm, I'm not a betting guy, and I'm not going to wager anything, but I don't think I'm going to make it the afternoon. But I didn't put me in Christ. I'm not the one that did that. I am not going to take credit for that. I could be more specific. The Holy Spirit came and opened up my eyes and my ears and showed me Jesus. I could be more specific and say Jesus sought me while I was at enmity with them. But even back to our skeptic who says, you know, God, how can God be good and yet allow this suffering? You want to know when the Lord really got my attention? It was as his providential hands had a hold of me and my life was practically a shipwreck. I didn't pay much attention to him while everything was going good. It wasn't until the wheels started flying off when he started to get my attention. I never want to go through all that again. But in his providence and in his faithfulness and in his shepherding and of course in his sovereignty because none of this is possible without his sovereignty. He put me in Jesus. Have you been put in Jesus? Has this shepherding hands been all over you? How many times have you gone to the left or gone to the right only for His loving and gentle and gracious hands and shepherding hands to have taken you and put you back in the middle? How many times has that happened to you? 
That has never happened to you. You haven't been walking with him very long. Or you haven't started walking with him yet at all. But if you start walking with him, what happens? We're all like sheep. What do we do? What do sheep do? It's not, listen, I know none of us are, are shepherds. And we don't know a lot about sheep, but I'll let you in on a secret. Being called sheep is not a compliment. It's not a compliment. You know, I was reading about sheep, um, thinking about doing some things with Psalm 23, and I was reading about sheep. You know, sheep, if the shepherd isn't careful to move them around, they'll actually eat the grass all the way down and actually eat the roots if they're, if they're left alone. Well, the grass won't, if you eat the roots, you dig the roots up, well, then all it's going to be left is, I mean, if you let sheep have their own way, they'd create a dust bowl out of the place. And down the list you can go. I mean, it's not, it's not a compliment. But there we see the grace of God, don't we? We're all a bunch of sheep. Yet God in His providential hands, His faithful hands, His shepherding hands, sovereign hands has come to us. Lastly, Ephraim and Manasseh are going to be so great that here we have a proverb. If you look at verse 20, there's a proverb that one of these days people will pronounce when they're, when they're saying or a blessing, if you will, when, when people are just speaking to each other and saying, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you, cause His face to shine upon you, they might be inclined to just say, man, may God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. That's the blessing. What an extraordinary blessing. What blessing awaits us? We are in God's amazing hands, are we not? What blessing awaits us? Heavenly Father, we so thank you, Father, for this story that you've given us. We so thank you for these strong hands, these sovereign hands, these shepherding hands, these faithful hands, these providential hands. Little Father, we thank you that Lord, in the midst of suffering, Father, you come and you leave this mark on Joseph and, and Ephraim and Manasseh's heart, a, a mark that wouldn't be possibly erased. And, Father, I pray that this morning you also leave that mark on our hearts, that indelible mark, O oh Lord, that as we looked at this scene that is so sad in so many ways is yet joyous, that as uh, tears are cried out of one eye, tears of great sadness and loss, uh, there are tears of joy coming out the other eye. And Father, we thank you, and Father, we praise you that you're willing to get you're willing to get in the mess with us. That this is we, we would like to tidy this up and make this nice and neat. But there you are, O oh Lord, calling this meeting to order through through this illness, this painful illness. And, Father, many of us, we, we can attest that as we came to faith, it was, it was by way of your providence through a time of suffering. And, Lord, we also confess that, that many times we only grow in your grace as we go through periods of trial and suffering, that you so routinely use this to raise us. 
We thank you, Father, that you love us so very much that you would endure the reproach of skeptics in order to see to it that we're in the best of hands. We thank you, O Father. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.